Hey everybody, Peter Zion here, coming to you briefly from New York City. Uh, I'm in town for like 16 hours. Well, anyway, I wanted to do a quick update because things are changing so quickly in Ukraine. Uh, there's been a series of breakthroughs through Russian lines north of Kyrgyzstan, and as a result, it appears that the entire Russian line is crumpled. The problem is that the Russians really have nowhere to retreat to, or at least not with their gear. There are two bridges, one in Kyrgyzstan and one in Nova Kakova, uh, that have been damaged so you can walk across them, but you can't take your equipment with you. You can't drive across them. And that means that the Russians are literally running for their lives, and very soon they're going to be pinned against the river, and they'll have a choice between fighting to the death, surrendering, or making a run on foot for one of those bridges to get away. Now, this would obviously be bad for the Russians in any circumstance because this is the furthest that the Russians have gotten. Kyrgyzstan is the only major city that the Russian advance has captured in seven months. But there's an additional problem here. This is the greatest concentration of Russian forces, and it is the best troops that Russia has. So we're talking at something like 25,000 troops with the best equipment that the Russians have. And if they have to abandon that, it's a double whammy, because you're talking about the evisceration and destruction of their most capable armored and infantry and artillery formations and the abandonment of the best equipment that they have to the Ukrainian forces. In terms of weapons transfers, this would be bigger than even what the Ukrainians got with their Kharkiv offensive and the capture of Izium last month. Uh, and it's also would be greater than everything that NATO has transferred to Ukraine so far. Now, I still believe that this is Russia's war to li lose. Uh, the first year of all Russia's wars look a lot like this. Bad training, bad coordination, uh, poorly maintained equipment, and eventually they turn the corner. But if their most powerful formations dissolve in the next couple of days, uh, it's time to start thinking about what that means for Russia as a whole. That is going to have to be the topic of another video. Anyway, watch Kirsten closely. This could very well be where this war is decided. Take care. So I believe that Ukrainian forces have achieved irreversible momentum. There's, there's no going back. Uh, it's too early to uh, start planning victory parades. Uh, there's still a lot of really hard fighting to go. Thousands more people are going to die. Uh, probably murdered by Russian forces firing into residential areas again. Um, but it, it feels like, well, in fact, I'm sure that we are at the point now where there's no going back. I expect that Ukraine will push Russian forces back to the 23 February line by the end of this year, and that they will have uh, liberated Crimea by next summer, 2023. What does a negotiated peace in your mind look like today, given what you just said? Well, of course, there, there should be no pressure on Ukraine to negotiate anything, uh, perhaps other than how fast the Russians can take down that big bridge over the Kerch Strait. Um, I don't know how we can press Ukraine to give up or let Russia keep any Ukrainian territory since we know what happens to Ukrainians in Russian-occupied territory. We've, we've all seen that. Uh, why in the world would should Putin be rewarded in any way, get any sort of victory out of this? And all this will do will result in another frozen conflict. And you and I will be talking next year about well, what are we going to do about now is we, like Crimea, like Georgia. Exactly. I mean, this started with Transnistria, Georgia, Crimea, Syria. And here we are kind of at the end of a, another 30 years war, if you will. When you think about
about what happens next. There's been a suggestion um, by the Ukrainians that they would allow for U.S. oversight on Russian targets if they were to obtain another long-range missile system. Is that something that, in your view, the U.S. would even consider? Is that even legal? Well, uh, first let me say this. The administration has done a fantastic job. Uh, I mean, really, from a diplomatic standpoint, uh, the commitment to uh, helping Ukraine and, and keeping the allies together has been so, so important. The one place where I disagree with the administration is they stopped short of saying we want Ukraine to win and we're going to do everything necessary to help them win. And uh, this is because I think of a overestimation of the risk of escalation, of it going nuclear. And so the idea of we can't give Ukraine uh, ATACMs, for example, the extended range, because they might use them against targets inside Russia, which then dot, dot, dot. I think Ukraine has made it clear we won't do that. I mean, and that's easy for us to control. Um, so if, if Ukraine had ATACMs right now, they could be hitting tar- Russian ships sitting in Sevastopol. I mean, that's exactly 300 kilometers from Odessa to Sevastopol. That's a, that's a capability that would, uh, I think, speed us towards a successful conclusion here. And speaking of that escalation, obviously the threat of nuclear action by the Kremlin has been something that everyone's been talking about over yeah. the last couple of weeks. Do you believe that's a credible threat? It's, it's absolutely a credible threat. Uh, they have thousands of nuclear weapons. Um, and President Putin obviously doesn't care about how many innocent people would get killed. But I still think it's unlikely that he would do it. Number one, there, there's no battlefield advantage to using a nuclear weapon for the Russians. In the Cold War, the Soviet doctrine was to use a tactical nuclear weapon to, to create a, a breach that then follow-on forces could go through and exploit it. There are no follow-on forces. I mean, there's nobody to go through. So if they use it against a city somewhere in Ukraine or troop concentration, it would kill several people, several thousand people, perhaps but it would give them no advantage. So they would get all the negative repercussions for doing that with no advantage. So I hope they don't make that terrible decision. Furthermore, they know that it would be impossible for the United States not to become directly involved. And that's the last thing they want. Our president, his national security advisor made it clear that would be a terrible mistake for Russia. The consequences would be devastating. And I imagine that the president would do things in consultation with allies it would be proportional and it would be done in such a way that doesn't automatically lead to a a next round but it would be very clear and the chinese are watching this the north koreans are watching this the iranians are watching this this is why it's so important that we have to we would have to respond and finally the people around putin to keep him in power they're the ones that's the target of information say hey look if you have any hope of life after putin of, of getting back to your oligarch lifestyle, then you will make sure that he never uses a nuclear weapon. I imagine that's being conveyed to them pretty clearly. In terms of the sanctions that we've seen um, from Western allies, NATO allies on Russia, do you believe that they have been enough? Do we need to look at more sanctions? I Well, I would imagine additional sanctions are on that list of options, that there are still other things that could be done. I'm actually quite pleased with uh, what the administration has done uh, on sanctions. We know that, for example, the Russians cannot replace any of the precision weapons they've been using because they depend on imported parts for Iskander missile, for example. 
So that, that has a positive battlefield effect as well as other aspects of their defense industry. Um, the people are beginning to feel it also, which is important. And I, I believe that the combination of endless catastrophes on the battlefield, this terribly bungled uh, partial mobilization and the domestic impact of sanctions, that's going to make it very, very difficult for the Kremlin to keep their population motivated to continue this conflict. How worried are you about European NATO member motivation? Because we're talking so much about the energy crisis and the potential, if there's a long, cold winter in Europe, for that to escalate. We're talking about energy poverty now. Yeah. So I live in Frankfurt, Germany, and um, I have been impressed over the last two or three months as I've watched the uh, public attitude change. First of all, the, the Kremlin played the gas card way too early. So people like Minister Habeck, uh, who's in charge of energy uh, for Germany, they had months to find alternative sources for the United States to respond, to do other things, and to build up storage capacity. I mean, they're over 90% now, which is well ahead of where they would typically be this time of year. Secondly, I've, I've sensed a growing resolve among German uh, business people that I interact with uh, frequently. I, 74% of Germans are in favor of doing more to help Ukraine. I mean, this is significant. And so I'm much less worried about it now than I was two or three, two or three months ago. Um, and I would say also, uh, this is the last winter. I mean, this, is the la this will be the last winter that Russia can influence what we have to deal with in wintertime. I mean, people are finding other sources of energy. Humans adapt. I mean, we're, we're figuring it out. This, so if we think in terms of this is the last winter, we, we kind of have to gut it out. Uh, not just heat in our apartments, but for industry. It's going to force us uh, to do other things. I'm actually more worried that there are uh, many members, Republican members of the Congress, that are, why are we, why are we helping Ukraine? I mean, it's incredible to me that the party of Reagan uh, now are the most vocal, loudmouth supporters of what the Kremlin is doing. I, I don't understand that. When you think about the U.S. Congress uh, and the administration, frankly, in terms of supporting Europe in this energy crisis, do you think that they're going to have to get used to the fact that they're going to have to be spending more in order to ensure security in Europe? Look, uh, America's prosperity is directly tied to European prosperity. I mean, our biggest trading partners are the European Union. So even if not one European country spent one euro, pound, zloty, uh, or krona on defense, it's still in our interest that Europe is stable so that it, and secure so that it can be prosperous. So in the long run, this is actually a pretty small investment. I mean, if you think about, there are about-ish 100,000 U.S. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines that are in Europe, permanent and rotate, 100,000. That's how many people fill up Michigan's football stadium. So we're not talking about a gigantic chunk of our defense. General, it's wonderful to have you on CNBC. Thank you for joining us. It was my privilege. At this time, passing uh, 070 for 140 to RTD, linking the acceptance.
the system we ha- we have had for the last twenty <coughs> five years, the Chinese have been able to take advantage of it. That's part of the problem, mm-hmm. because they're able to hollow out the economies of a lot of the less developed countries. At the same time, they're able to hollow out the manufacturing bases of the more advanced economies. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, the rest of the world has gotten cheap goods, and that's about it. And that's one of the reasons why we've had this independent Chinese rise. They've basically been able to transfer parts of the global system because of the lack of institutions to the Chinese system, and that is what has undermined everything else. That's what's got to stop. The Chinese decision to back the Russians in this war has really changed mindsets. Um, let me give you two things. I mean, there, there's a, a, a dozen major reasons that I don't think the Chinese system is going to survive this this decade. But let me give you the two that are absolutely unassailable. Uh, first of all, China is the third most internationally integrated country in the world after the Germans and the Koreans. They are utterly dependent upon globalized access to raw materials and markets the world over. They import the raw materials, they import the technology, people forget that that, that piece sometimes, and then they export the finished goods. That does not work without a globalized world, and there is no coalition of countries that can replace the United States as the guarantor of that world. And with the Americans going their own way, that's it. The entire economic model doesn't work. Semiconductors is probably the best space to just to see how exposed the Chinese are. They can't make the high-end or the mid-end chips, and they can't make the equipment to make the low-end chips. They are completely dependent upon tech transfers from the rest of the world in order to sustain that entire industry. And now we have the Dutch, the Danes, the Brits, the Japanese, the Koreans, and the Taiwanese, along with the Americans, saying that never again can the Chinese access high-end chips at all. And the question is, what mid-end chips can they have and whether they should be able to have the equipment necessary to make the low-end chips? So we're talking in the course of just the last few months, their access to that space has stopped. If the Chinese have a significant policy change and kind of sue for peace as part of a globalization 2.0, there's definitely a conversation to be had there. I don't mean to suggest that that aspect of this is past the point of no return. That The W administration tried back before the 9-11 attacks, trying to bring China into a new revitalized globalized system. Obviously, we all got a little bit distracted about them. Um, But the second problem unfortunately, is much worse, and that's the demographic situation. According to the Chinese themselves, with the data they're starting to let out, they've overcounted their population by over 100 million people. Mm-hmm. All of those overcounts for people who would have been born since the one-child policy has been adopted, which was uh, 40 years ago, so people 40 and under. And they were already looking at one of the fastest drop-offs in terms of birth rate in human history. Uh, you know, you need 2.1 births per woman to maintain your population. In their metro centers, they're now below 0.7. I mean, th- this is faster than the Korean drop-off, and they haven't developed nearly as much as the Koreans have. So if these numbers are true, they're going to lose almost two Americas of population in just the next 30 years. And the average age will be older than the Japanese are now. Uh, This is not something, we don't even have a model. If you're talking about a population that drops by almost half in 30 years and the people that are left are in their 50s and 60s, I I don't see how that can function. Uh, But we are in unprecedented times. Uh, I get surprised all the time. Is it theoretically possible that the United States will force some sort of second phase globalization on the world? Yes, but what made globalization one work 
is most of the world was devastated. And not only was the American deal good, it was really the only one on the table. I don't think there's a belief at this point that the United States is willing to go that far or cut to the bone that much on economic matters in order to get its way. Uh, the American political system really is in a period of retrenchment, regardless of what happens with Biden and Trump. And the degree of leadership that that would require and the degree of acceptance that the rest of the world would have to generate, I don't think that's on deck. Uh, let me give you two reasons. One, why I don't think the Chinese would go for it. And the second one, why how I would do it if I was you know, king for a day. Um, the Chinese have degraded into a cult of personality that makes Mao look inclusive. Mm. And they have become hostage to their own ideology. And it's leading to a series of cascading policy decisions across the system. The COVID policy is one of those. <laughs> and the capacity of the Chinese system to adapt and get out of its own way, at least at the moment, is gone. Mm -hmm. uh, Xi has killed the messenger so many times that there's, it's difficult to get him any real information. And it's only in this last week that he's finally had a face-to-face -face with anyone for the first time in almost three years. Uh, so their ability to move beyond the blind ideology of the propaganda arm is, is seriously constrained at the moment. On the United States side, assuming that the Americans can kind of get their political ducks in a row at home enough to have this conversation, the first step would be to start with the inner family. So the, the other Anglo states and the Mexicans and kind of do a first round NAFTA extension combination security and economic deal. Hmm. The second phase would be to bring in the countries <laughs> that are consolidated already that have good relations with the United States. You would need a formal globalization 2.0 version that fuses economic and security issues into a single governing system. It's yeah. not national merger. But it's something a lot more formal than than just the Article Five guarantees of uh, of NATO and the uh, adjudication systems of NAFTA. Something where it's all under one roof, and we'd all agree to the ground rules at the same time. So, human rights, free enterprise, physical defense—all part of the same association. Kind of like what some um, supporters of the European Union would like to see the EU become. And what would be the advantage over our current? arrangements in having such a such a scheme. right now it's very bilateral and it's very ad hoc mm -hmm. and if you're talking about something that is designed at the end to be a an overarching system it needs to be together mm -hmm. and if you're talking about something that is going to be able to bring the chinese into it it has to be potent you're not going to do that with a simple bilateral deal you have to have an enforcement mechanism and we've learned over and over and over that the chinese are unwilling to do that unless they are forced entities outside of china to be able to adjudicate disputes with the chinese outside of china and have it stick mm -hmm. <laughs> right now under pre-existing systems we sue the chinese including at the wto the decision is imposed and the chinese just move on that's not how it works if you're going to have a, tr a system that really sticks you've got to end what has been a relatively exploitive position that the chinese have taken versus the rest of the world I'm not sure there's any policy change that can save the Chinese at this point, but if the United States is going to go back into a position of de facto subsidizing a lot of the world, mm -hmm. the, the baseline understandings have to evolve.
And part of that means getting institutions in place that the United States maybe doesn't control, but certainly heavily influences uh, that are enforceable. Hey, everybody. Peter Zion here coming to you from my old stomping grounds, Austin, Texas. Uh, To my Austin friends, that is correct. I did not tell you that I was coming here and I have had some margaritas. However, I'm only here for 19 hours. Don't get crazy. I'll still see you in a couple weeks when I'm back. Anywho, uh, the big news of October 5 is that OPEC has announced it is planning on reducing output by 2 million barrels a day, uh, despite the fact that there's a war raging and a major energy producer uh, and energy prices writ large are really high and global inflation is high. Now, uh, some people are, of course, well, I shouldn't say some people, a lot of people <laughs> are, of course, latching this onto what other their favorite drum is to beat at the moment. Some people on Twitter have said that, uh, you know, of course, they're doing this to stick it to, quote, my boy Biden. And, you know, my boy Biden? Ew. No. Um, far more important far more important, is that OPEC is nowhere near their production quota. In fact, as recently as August, they were about 2.8 million barrels a day below it. So if they cut their quota by 2 million barrels a day, that actually means they might increase output. So, you know, number one, let's wait to see what happens here. Uh, The problem here is that if you are outside of the Persian Gulf, uh, OPEC members, so Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia, Everyone else has just been in this investment bomb for over a decade. Uh, in fact, since 2014, total investment to all oil and all natural gas globally, government, state company, private companies, doesn't matter the total, is down by about two-thirds. And the non-Gulf OPEC countries are no exception. Places like Gabon and Nigeria and Venezuela are just borderline incompetent when it comes to maintaining their own energy infrastructure anyway. So they're completely dependent on internal investment, and yet they think they have uh, checks that they need to write so they don't provide the investors with particularly great terms. And so if you're those investors and cash is limited, you try to put your money elsewhere where it's going to be more productive with a more reliable partner. And that manifests as lower production in a lot of OPEC states to the tune of apparently 2.8 million barrels per day. Now, in the last few weeks, about a fresh million has come online, mostly from Libya and Nigeria, uh, because a certain confluence of events have allowed them to increase input in, or output in the short term. But don't expect that to drop. Both of them are very close to record low outputs at the moment, and they'll probably be back within a few months. This is kind of how it shakes out with these folks. Anyway, bottom line is before you ascribe any sort of motivation to OPEC, you know, the favorite one being that they're trying to stick it to Biden because Biden is green and hasn't been exactly kind to the Saudis. There might be something to that, but we're not there yet. Don't ever in this line of work listen to people what listen to what people say. Watch what they do, especially when you're talking about folks in the Middle East where suicide bombs are often perceived as a legitimate form of political discourse. The rules are different over there. And we need to keep that in mind before we jump to any conclusions. So wait, watch. Let's see what the Saudis do over the course of the next few weeks with their actual oil exports. That'll tell us everything we need to know about what it is they're trying to actually achieve. Okay, that's it for me. Until next time. We always opted for uh, making sure that we uh, are attentive 
And to be attentive, you have to be assertive and prevent, pre preemptive and certainly uh, ahead of the curve, which means you have to be proactive. If you permit me, Royal Highness, we are not endangering the energy markets. We are providing security, stability to the energy markets. At a price. Uh, everything has a price. Energy security has a price as well. You know, our priority now is stabilizing market. Now, we could be accused of wanting to uh, influence market in a negative way. That's everybody's prerogative. We and others will see how we conduct ourselves in the months to come. The most pivotal and more important thing for all of us in this table and others who have a huge amount of hydrocarbon resources is to make sure that we have a stable, sustainable, stable market that would not inhibit investment, that will not inhibit growth of demand, and we have to act in a way, in a responsible way, to assure people that we are still remaining a responsible uh, producers that the world can rely on us. And when it comes to OPEC, we've made clear uh, our, uh, our views to, uh, to OPEC members. Uh, we have a multiplicity of interests with regard to Saudi Arabia, uh, and I think the President laid those out uh, during his trip, uh, and they include everything from regional relationships, including improving relations uh, between Arab countries and, uh, and Israel, uh, Yemen, where we're working very closely with Saudi Arabia, uh, to try to continue uh, the, uh, the truce, uh, and uh, a number uh, of other issues, and those were all uh, reflected uh, in, the, in the visit. But we are working every single day to uh, make sure, to the best of our ability, that, again, energy supply from wherever is actually meeting demand in order to ensure that energy is on the market and that prices uh, are, uh, are kept low. Supply issues and international conflict. World wars among big powers are quite possible to control dwindling oil supplies. Just like it did in 1973, when an OPEC oil embargo led to an international shortage and rocked the global economy. In the Dallas area today, dealers raised prices to more than 40 cents a gallon. Yes, kids, that was a lot. But a federal government price cap kept the prices down, yet created a whole new set of problems, like rationing and an industry shutting down, unable to turn a profit. But you will go up when you get the word. Yes, sir, I definitely will. Another idea to save gas, just drive slower. And many Dallas motorists agree that it's going to take a decrease in speed in order to slow down the energy crisis. The city of Dallas even considered regulating it. City manager George Schrader has urged the city council to reduce speed limits from 60 to 50 miles an hour. It all sounds like a great plan until you have to be somewhere. Are you willing to slow down to 50 miles an hour? No. Why not? Because <laughs> it's stupid, you know, and I just miss the light. <laughs> if the fuel crisis gets worse and a ban on Sunday driving is put into effect, this is what Texas Stadium might look like. A Sunday ban on driving was considered like some European countries did. But what would that do to the NFL? If the National Football League were forced to move to Saturday, it would mean a total blackout of uh, all professional football. Cowboys GM Tech Schramm said the league couldn't broadcast during college football Saturdays. So the other option? I don't think our game would be very 
attractive being played before an empty uh, stadium. The NFL playing in empty stadiums, an unimaginable idea. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's right. So the entire purpose of the Cold War globalized order was to pay other countries to be on our side to contain the Soviets. It worked well. Uh, so the Soviets have always been leery of American leadership, especially when it comes to economic matters, because they just see it as a ploy to box them in, and they're not entirely wrong. I understand why they're paranoid. Uh, oftentimes, Russian paranoia actually is rooted in a degree of fact, certainly in this case. But this is a country that doesn't have a good internal transport network. There are, all the navigable rivers flow north into the Arctic, not any place where anyone would want to go. Uh, and the land is dry and the land is cold. So it's not very productive from an agricultural point of view. So Russia has always needed external investment and external uh, technology in order to make its own system work at anything other than like a serfdom level. That's not really an option, especially when you look at their demographics. And between World War I and World War II and Soviet collectivization and the purges and the forced relocations and the post-Cold War health collapse, Russia had the fastest aging society in the world until Japan passed them up a few years ago. So this is a country that is also on its way out. Now, it doesn't have the economic vulnerabilities that China has. Because the Russians never invested their economy in the global system, when the global system goes away, they're more or less all right. Sure, they will lose resource sales, but militarily, they're in a reasonably good position. The problem is it's not good enough. Because the train is so open, Russian history is replete with examples of countries basically rolling in and invading. We know about the Germans. We know about the Swedes, we know about the Chinese, we know about the Persians and the Mongols, but people forget that countries like Canada invaded Russia at one point. I mean, it's not a hard place to get a foothold in. Poland almost conquered Moscow once. So while no one is thinking, oh, I want to march on Moscow right now, the Russians can't take that chance because it's happened so many times before. So if you've got a terminal demography and no real economy, the only thing that you can do to buy yourself more time is take your army while it's still functional and forward position it and plug the geographic gaps that access your lands. So the Carpathians form a border. You anchor there. But that means conquering Ukraine and half of Poland and the Balts. You go south and anchor in the Tenshian, but that means conquering Kazakhstan and the central uh, Central Asian republics. So this is something that Russia can do and is working on doing with as much diplomacy and arm twisting as it can. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're going to have to use troops. And if they do this, and if it works, then Russia buys itself another 30 years, which honestly is more time than China has. Uh, we, courtesy of the Trump administration, got down to fewer than 20,000 troops in the area. And under Biden, we're going to go to zero by the end of September. So we are close to there. Germany is an interesting place. Uh, we all know it, of course, from history is one of the more warlike places uh, because they're in the middle of everything and they have to be aggressive if they're going to survive. If they wait for someone else to move first, they will always be outnumbered and outgunned and surrounded. But then World War II happened and they were forcibly reconstructed by the Allies. And so Germany today is neo-pacifist and their general feeling is if it becomes a military competition, we've already lost. 
So they want to keep the competition economic and financial so that their larger size, their better geography, their more economically viable firms can dominate. And in the world of the global order, that's a good play because if the Americans are outlawing war in Europe and are protecting the Europeans from the Russians and from one another, then the military question isn't even on the table. And in that environment, the Germans have restructured their entire system to maximize benefit. And it's worked very, very well. And that's why Germany is the Germany that we think of, the Germany of industry and exports and manufacturing. But if you remove the Americans from that equation, it all goes to hell. And the only way that Germany continue to exist is by putting the military question back on the table and looking out for its own interests. And the last 11 times that has happened, it has ended badly. France is on the flip side. At the end of World War II, France was the least interested country in what the Americans were offering with the order because like the United States, they've got a great geography. They've got navigable rivers, fantastic farmland, good local resources, access to the Mediterranean. This is a country that has been a world power for the last several centuries without any help, thank you very much. And then the Americans came in and said, you know, geography doesn't matter. Everyone can play. And in that world, everything that made France special ceased to matter. But now remove the Americans. All of a sudden, geography comes back with a vengeance. And unlike the Germans who retooled everything, the French retooled nothing. So this state-managed economic system that's, that we see that we see as a negative right now, in a post-globalized world, that's the way to go in Europe. And they never changed anything. They also happen to have the second most powerful military in all of Europe, the second largest army after Turkey, the second largest navy after the UK. They are no joke. And unlike the United States, when it hits a certain casualty level in its conflicts, it tends to pull back. The French go in hard. Uh, they are extraordinarily unapologetic. They're almost American in their foreign policy. And so if you just fast forward a few years, Western Europe is France's playground. And Germany has to find a new way to operate. Of course, that's what Macron's been trying to do, president of Europe. We've been hopscotching uh, around the world quite a bit, uh, but let's go to India. Is India a winner? Uh, it depends on how you define that word. Uh, I don't think India is going to have any kind of the problems like Russia or Germany. It's, well, Saudi Arabia has long depended upon the United States' largesse, both in terms of oil purchases and military defense, in order to make itself exist. I mean, this is a country that doesn't have an economy outside of the oil markets. And this is a country that doesn't have the military capacity to patrol its own streets, much less its borders. Uh, so as the United States pulls back the... Uh, the Saudis are having an no crap moment and they're trying to figure out what to do. So the solution seems to be to stir up as much trouble among as many rivals as possible. So that they're busy putting out fires on their side of the desert borders to Saudi Arabia's north. So Yemen is kind of target practice for their air force. They've discovered they're not very good at it. Uh, but ISIS is a great example of the sort of institution that ISIS, that uh, the Saudis are creating to cause problems for other countries so those other countries can't target Saudi Arabia. So ISIS cost them almost nothing, and it stirred up the region for seven years. Low cost, very effective. They're trying the same thing in Iran, in Chechnya. They tried the same thing with Russia in the past. They're trying the same thing in the Levant, not targeting the Israelis, targeting the groups that are targeting the Israelis. 
the Israelis and the Saudis get along splendidly. And they think about as highly of everybody else in the region as they think of each other. Five, 10 years from now, we're going to probably have a very different opinion about Iran. Now, most of the bad blood between the Americans and the Iranians, of course, dates back to the 1979 revolution and the hostage crisis. Absolutely. But if you look at the 50 years of history before that, we got along pretty well with the Persians because we trusted them more than we trusted the Arabs. Remember that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia right now, this is the guy who sent a hit squad to kill a journalist and then ordered them to cook it to nothing in a um, brick oven out in a courtyard of the embassy and then hosted a party for 500 peoples to destroy the forensic evidence. These are not nice people. Uh, and with a little bit of perspective, you have the Saudis throwing terror attacks around the region for a few years. And you have Iran functionally cut out of the oil markets for a few years. The United States is probably going to look at this whole region a little bit differently. I don't mean to suggest that we're going to get back in bed with the Iranians anytime soon, but I think we're going to have a little bit more nuanced view of the region when it comes to Israel versus Saudi Arabia versus Iran than we do right now. Uh, and ultimately, the country that has to kind of pick up where we left off and make sense of this, that's Turkey. And they're a country that is very capable of doing that. But just like everybody else in the world, they would rather the Americans do it. And it's not until we're completely gone that they're going to realize that it's either they do it or it's done to them. I like